0: and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about Scotland's food and drink. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I head off foraging with Rupert Waits, one half of Buck and Birch. After discovering what's available in Scotland over the seasons, with a particular focus on autumn, we headed back to the Buck and Birch tasting room, where we were joined by Tom Chisholm, and the two discussed how they went from pop-up forage dinners to inadvertently becoming part of the drinks industry. Good morning, good afternoon.
1: Good morning, yes.
0: So we're going to go foraging in Butterdean Woods.
1: Absolutely, yeah. We are uh, here just not far from uh, from where we do our uh, our drinks making. Uh, this is a very typical kind of place you might find uh, Community Woodland. Beautiful place, you can hear the birds singing, the sun's out, it's fresh, it's beautiful. I'm calling it late summer. Yeah, we're just going to try and show you guys how uh, you know this big, beautiful green wall behind us is full of just joy and wonder and tasty stuff.
0: Convert it because my my knowledge is pretty much brambles at this time of year.
1: So. Brambles. Well, you can see here in the car park. Everybody knows brambles. Um, brilliant place for people to start. Everybody should go out with their kids and pick brambles, make bramble jelly. Uh, we do a few other things with brambles. Uh, we make bramble tip wine, bramble wine. We pickle brambles. We make nettle bramble leaf tea. Um, but yeah, that is it's a great great place to start.
0: Will we go and have a look at some brambles? and eat some brambles.
1: <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean you can literally start filling your boots here. These are great. And amongst the brambles, you'll see already, we've got this uh, this lovely... This is um, like sticky willow mm-hmm. cleavers. So a lot of people know this, you know, you throw it on each other as children and have lots of fun with it.
0: Pick it out my dog.
1: Pick it out the dog, <laughs> definitely. I think this is where Velcro was invented, you know? It was... Um, but this time of year, if you're if you're looking for some, some coffee, it's the same family as the coffee plant. Um, and you can take the seeds and you could roast the seeds, grind them up and make coffee. Aww. Beautiful stuff. So we put that in our uh, in our coffee martana.
0: What's your coffee martana? Is that a drink?
1: So that's a drink, yeah. We make um, cocktails, uh, wild-based cocktails. Um, and that's a very popular one. So it's birch, caramel, spirit, cleaver coffee. And uh, yeah, it's very, very tasty.
0: So at home, if you did get some of the cleaver stuff how easy is it to roast it and make the coffee would you just stick it in like a, how would you do that
1: I mean it's really just a matter of finding finding yeah. the, you see here that'll grow in big mats on the fences and across walls and on your brambles and um, it's taking it and, and just taking the time to pick the seeds out uh-huh. um, and just literally roast them on a tray just dry roast them grind them up in a coffee grinder or pestle and mortar and, and use a cafetiere.
0: Nice, because I should say it looks, I would to, the, to someone who doesn't know, I'd say that looks a bit dead. So it's like what would have been green sticky is now kind of Great brown giftier. and Because in the spring,
1: it. the young sticky willow, is, it tastes of peas, so you can eat the young shoots. Uh, but if you take the young shoots and put them in water overnight um, and then strain it out the next day and just drink the water, it's a really, really good, I think it's a lymphatic tonic um, and it regulates the metabolism. And it tastes kind of like green banana and mango. It's yes. incredible, yeah. So it's like this weird exotic flavor coming out of springtime Scotland, that by winter becomes coffee, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So it's this wonderful transformation. It's like elderberry, it goes from elderflower, mm-hmm. which is this wonderful airy fairy kind of, um, you know, muscat grape kind of flavor. And then by the time it gets to the berry, which is now, it's, uh, it's like port. You know, it's like dark, dark. They're yeah. total opposites from the same plant. Yeah. Elderberry is very good for you, yeah. It's, it's you know, especially everyone talks about um, their immune system at the moment. It is a great immune booster. And it's got chemicals in it, I think, that coat yeah. the mucous membranes of cells. So it stops viral attachment. Um, so as a preventative, we recommend everybody drink spot of Elder probably every day. <laughs> but yeah, it's really, really good for you. I think Hippocrates, Hippocrates said, uh, you know, if you have Elder in your medicine chest, you need little else, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a gift really. But everything, it, it's, it's, once you start looking, once you lift the green veil and you, you stop to look, we've not even got lift the car park, and we've got nettles here, and at the moment they're past eating, but the seeds, the yeah. seeds are very good for you. You could put them in a granola, you could make tea from them, they give you a real boost of energy. We've got sycamore, you can tap the sycamore, Bit like uh, maple syrup you'll get from that. Um, Brambles, you know these young shoots, you could eat those as a vegetable, Um, and on and on it goes. You know it's uh, it's endlessly giving, and there's always something new to discover.
0: And so for anybody like starting out, so say you know you're going for a walk with your dog, or you're just going for a wander this autumn, are there any sort of hard and fast rules that you would say for foraging?
1: I mean the hard and fast rules are, legally speaking, you know don't dig anything up. Um, for example, don't take everything that you see somewhere, you've got to share it with uh, all the animals and the other people. And don't eat anything you're not 100% sure about. Don't do identification on Facebook, go steady, go out with a, an experienced forager, there are lots of them about. Um, you know, we're going to start doing courses soon. Um, but just, just, you know, start with brambles, you really can't go wrong with brambles. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the fireweed here. So at the moment it's doing it's furry thing. They call it firewood, I think, because it comes up first after a fire in the Yukon. It's the national fire of the Yukon. Um, And what it's job seems to be in nature is that once the forest has been burned to the ground, as it happens naturally, you know, this will be the first thing that comes up and it makes new soil really quickly. So in the bomb sites in London, I think, you know, um, back in the day, this was the first thing that comes up. It's almost guaranteed that if you just dug a hole in the ground somewhere, anywhere in Britain, one of the first things that would cover the earth would be fireweed. And this makes the tea, it makes a beautiful cordial from the flowers. I think it's just beautiful, and gardeners hate them. Mm-hmm. But we serve the shoots when they're young, so when they're about this high, you can pick the shoot and peel it and use it like asparagus. Mm-hmm. So it's just got this constant, constant use.
0: And Brilliant. Is this, would it have pink flowers? Is this is the pink
1: flower, yeah. Right. I think uh, the birds love to take the seed and actually people can use the seed as um, tinder to make new fire because it's very very dry and um, birds like love to line their nests you know. Very often you find a little wren's nest and it'll be very cozy because of these. But generally just tread really carefully. Um, And when you're 100% certain, not 99% certain, you know, then enjoy what you find, yeah. But I think it's all about becoming familiar. You know, it's, it's about building up your confidence and saying, well, I got that one right. And, you know, rowing is very difficult to get wrong. Acorns are very difficult to get wrong. You know, you can't really go wrong. Brambles, fireweed. Um, yeah, th- there are more plants that will kill you than mushrooms in Britain. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, and people will, quite rightly, tell you to be very wary of mushrooms. Um, but again, it's like start with a chanterelle, you know, and once you get your eye in and you start noticing the differences in the mushrooms and identifying them and spending some time with them, it's all about building up, I think, a relationship with the plants so that you become, essentially become intimate, you know, you, you the, the final stage being that they they become part of you, you know. But because most people see this as a whole, they see it as a, as a green thing to take a picture of and it's a two-dimensional you know but the real joy comes when you start grabbing things and you'll never go real wrong grabbing something you know and just smelling it and thinking i wonder what that is and then you can maybe look it up and i'm just taking it step by step as monica would always say you know my friend monica is you know do you know the difference between uh an iceberg lettuce and a savoy cabbage for example and everyone will say of course I know the difference but they both look and would describe the same Mm -hmm. but everybody knows the difference because you're familiar with them both and I think it's the same, you just once you get your eye in you start noticing the differences, you start finding it easier to identify things and then you can really just get going and exploring
0: Rupert and I walked further into the woods on the hunt for foraging treats including mushrooms
1: I mean Chanterelles, Giroles, I think the, the French call them they're beautiful they're really beautiful apricot coloured mushrooms and they'll be popping up just now. I think they're almost at the end of their uh, their season, but they're just a real gift and in woods like this you'll be able to find um, little funnel shaped uh, apricot coloured fungi and there's two types. There is a false chanterelle and the false chanterelle isn't very deadly, but it's not as tasty as the chanterelle, um, but they're a real good starting point for fungi hunters. Very rewarding.
0: And have you, so you said everyone's searching for them just now. Have you found that as people have become more into foraging, it's become harder for you guys who do it professionally and you I, need to I do it for your work?
1: Yeah, it's twofold. I think, one, there is a great upkeep in, in people um, from Britain who are just becoming interested again in mushroom hunting. And obviously there's a lot of people from, from abroad who have it still in their culture, so particularly Eastern European. Uh, my wife's from, from Thailand and her and all her friends are out all the time now collecting fungi. So there's just a lot more competition for the spots, you know, which I think is a great thing because it, it just shows that people are getting out and making use of, of the woods, you know.
0: So we're standing here now and I can see berries, which is interesting. I didn't know you could end with them because obviously you'd think red danger, but they are fine.
1: They're very, very, very bitter, you know. Um, but if you, you know, we, we blend them in, in vodka and spirit essentially and, then, and, and put them through a, a filter And then you get the fruitiness, without the bitterness. And we use that in our um, round cocktail, uh, which is sort of round shoots, which are marzipan flavoured. And it's got that lovely, sharp, fruity flavour of the berries. And and we also use the blossom. And a lot of people make jelly out of it, you know? But for me, the real joy are the shoots and the flower buds. You get those when they're they're young, um, in the springtime, and just immerse them in some vodka. Or you can immerse them in milk, and you just get this beautiful almond flavour, which I think is great. Of amaretto you know.
0: Nice. So, do you find that? So, we've just said, you know, the whole year round, you can sort of see the life cycle of plants and and take things from them. But you've mentioned quite often that you know the young shoots or leaves, and then now the berries and stuff. So, is the best time to go foraging and pick things, the spring and the autumn. Is there not really much in the summer? There
1: are, yeah. I mean, I think the there are two gluts really. Like everything comes up in spring, and it's all about the shoots and the flowers. And then in the summer, there's a sort of a lull almost. Um, well, there's less going on, you know. Um it's so it's more about leaves and it's about flower shoots and spikes and starting to get the fruits. And in the autumn it's kind of like it's all go. It's there's fungi going everywhere, there's all the berries, there's you know, it's the final hurrah really. I mean everyone sort of mostly seems to go crazy for the autumn time. Mm. But yeah, the the, the best time to go foraging I would always argue is, is kinda of right now. Because <laughs> there's just always something to be had. Um and in a typical foraging year I'd quite like it to last two years so there was enough time <laughs> to get everything because you're always you always miss something
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah but that's great I think it's it's good that there's too much
0: yeah because it keeps some for nature cuz like you say you don't pick everything when you see it
1: yeah and it just keeps some for like oh I missed making this thing that year and there's always something new you know for me as somebody creative or somebody inquisitive to to find i'll never exhaust this you know this um this avenue for creativity it, it's fascinating
0: so we've looked at rowan, brambles, cleavers, what else, like just on a sort of normal woodland walk should people be looking out for?
1: Well for me one of the real hidden things in Scotland, like we've, we've done our elderberry liqueur which is I think, you know, not enough people eat elderberries, it's one of the most abundant, easy to identify, just easy to pick, you know, you need to cook them to, to avoid any problems at all but after that they are so good for you, they are so tasty, we've got rose hips that we make a liqueur from, again... Super abundant, really, really tasty, full of vitamin C. It's basically a health drink. Um, And the third one that we've really gone for is the birch. So there's a little baby birch there. We've walked through the birch glade, that beautiful, um, you see the, you know, the very distinctive markings. Mm -hmm. And it's just such an abundant tree right the way around the Northern hemisphere. And we've set about recently making a drink um, to try and honour the birch, because we love the birch. Um, And we tap the birch for its sap, But we also collect birch bark, birch twigs, birch uh, buds, catkins, new leaves, we ferment some leaves. So we've we've got a drink uh, released soon, which is going to combine all of these with raw fresh sap to make a drink that's really, really quite unique, you know. It's a proper expression of a tree over its entire year's life cycle. Yeah, I'm quite excited about it.
0: And is it a straight up drink or have you done like with with your other drinks, is there alcohol in there?
1: Yes, it's it's pure alcohol, um, good. <laughs> diluted with nothing but pure fresh sap. Right. So we, we've been out um, collecting sap this year from about 40 trees in Gifford Community Woodland. They were very good and let us take some from their trees and we got 1200 litres of sap um, from which we've made syrups and we've made uh, this lovely new spirit. So we haven't distilled the spirit as such but we've distilled the essence of the birch mm-hmm. into and just captured it in spirit, if you like. Mm. So it's fresh, raw. It's really, it's really tasty, actually. It's our nod to gin, if you like. It's, it's, but it's, it's paired back. It's just birch, and it's beautiful.
0: Is it quite an ancient thing, though? Were people doing this years ago anyway, and it's everything was fine then? So I think,
1: I mean, yeah, you've got to be careful because you know people used to love picking primroses because it makes the best country wine um and now you can't really find primroses right, okay. <laughs> because people went yeah primroses there's so many of them we can just keep picking you know um and i think birch was the same they had a big problem in russia in the 1800s because literally everybody was going out to make wine from birch and there was so much so much going on that they were they were eating into the to the forests you know so they had to kind of say we're going we're going too far um but there's there's enough that you could you know gently take a good portion and I think there's enough trees that you could, you could take from here and then the next year move on. So you're always letting them recover, you know. But I think it's such a great resource that we, we just don't tap into enough, you know. Um, and it's a real, I think it's, it's, there's nothing more Scottish than, than birch trees, you know.
0: We continued our mushroom hunt. With limited success, it has to be said. But Rupert introduced me to another foraging delicacy, chicken of the woods. I'm
1: told there are seps in here, but I've never found one.
0: So what's, are they quite difficult to find, seps?
1: Not particularly, I mean, they like, actually, one of the things they like are these, uh, you know, the Sitka spruce plantations that are all over, like, the borders. They go nuts in there. Um, But they're very sought after, you know, porcini, essentially. Alas, no. But this big old cherry tree, see, it's, um, it's a huge one. So this here, this white, is um, that's the remnants of last year's chicken of the woods. So if we got this at the right time, I think sometimes it misses a year. So it lives in the ground and it'll be the mycelium will be all through the middle of the tree. So it's literally just eating the tree now. But it, it would be these beautiful shelf brackets of sulphur yellow with a beautiful orange frill.
0: So there's trees near me, just down the road from my flat that have huge sounds like that, it's just sticking off them
1: Could be, I mean it'd be bright bright sulphur yellow colour no. um, in this shelf pattern and um, yeah we, we would find them when they're young and cut the edge off and then chop them up into like chunks and you can do it like chicken so you need to cook it um, some people might get a little bit of stomach upset but if you get them young and you cook them really well uh, like I'll bread them and feed them with my son. He's quite fussy. and He loves it. He thinks it's chicken. <laughs> um, but they're just a beautiful mushroom. And it's a bonanza. When you find one, you've, you've found one. They're,
0: Massive. They're, yeah. To go back to what we were looking at, so brambles, I pick brambles and I make bramble jam, not jelly. I tried to make jelly once and it was a bit of a faff with strain in it. So I make just straight up jam. And I've used elderberries infused, stick it in with gin in a kilner jar and just leave it. All these things have loads of sugar and you've said, like, maybe yeah. adding loads of sugar is not the best. So is there ways for people to make simple things at home with foraged berries that aren't putting it full of sugar? I mean, I think there's
1: a, you know, a lot of people do fruit leathers, for example. Um, I mean, it's not wrong with a bit of sugar, but uh, I think it can be a bit much. Uh, uh, fruit leathers, you know, things like rose hips are naturally high in sugar. They've got about 10% sugar. So you can sieve the pulp um, and apples and just use that as a base. Uh, So, they've got quite a lot of natural sweetness going on there anyway. Um, And, yeah, just... uh, I mean, some people, they don't want to use a lot of sugar. You can use things like um, sweet woodruff or um, sweet sicily. So, you can add that... You can add less sugar, if you like, and they will enhance the flavour of the sugar. But there are, yeah, a lot of things, it would appear, uh, that need sugar. But this time of year, you've got the berries, you've got the nuts, you've got the fungi you know and, and yeah you could just literally go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and, on and, <laughs> and spend a whole lifetime doing it and never find the end of it you know and still always find something tomorrow that is just as amazing and makes everything as exciting as the first day.
0: We're back now in the Buckingbirch Birch tasting room and I'm joined by Rupert and Tom. Hi guys.
1: Hi there. How are you doing? Thanks very
0: much. That was great foraging walk there.
1: Glad you joined
0: it. Um, so we have some foraged kind of Canopies um, that you guys have as part of your taste in here. So, can we just kind of talk through them and we'll have a little tasting of maybe one of them?
1: Yeah, I mean, these are just, uh, you know, we started out as a wild dining outfit, just exploring the wilds and putting on crazy multi course tasting menus um, before we became a drinks brand, really. So, this is a pot of history, if you like, of all the best things of the Buck and Birch, uh, some of the canopies we used to, to feed people, um, and some of the things that, you know, you've just seen in the forest there. Uh, we always, always started with uh, smoked venison dandelion capers. It's beautiful. It's everything that's great. These are the little dandelion buds I was telling you about. They've got a little honey in the middle there. Um, and in the bowl, we've got uh, a gouger That's filled with some of the seps we didn't find in the forest. Um, and we've got a cracker with some wild garlic, which you could have found in the spring. Some of those uh, chanterelles. Um, yeah, it's a little... Uh, Example of some of the really tasty stuff that's out there that goes really well with the drinks that we're making. And for dessert here, we've got something a little bit unusual, hogseed parkin. So that's hogweed that everybody knows is this evil plant, but it's super super tasty. It's like a spice, really exotic Scottish spice. Um, so we just use that to flavor this beautiful cake. And the chocolate offering is jelly ear mushroom, which grows on elder trees. So we've soaked the mushrooms in our elder liqueur um, and covered them in chocolate. And they are very unusual, but very addictive.
0: So the hogweed, is that the same as giant hogweed?
1: It's the same family, yeah. Um, But it's our native hogweed. Not not the dangerous, dangerous one, no. It's only mildly dangerous, if you get it wrong. But the shoots, the shoots in spring are very tasty, but for us, it it really comes in its own. The spice at this time of year. Every hedgerow, every field edge, is covered in, in hogweed.
0: So which I, uh, what one would you recommend?
1: I would always start with the gougere, but essentially that's full of uh, thyme, a bit of brandy, lots of sets, we've got um, giant puffball mushrooms in there and some of that chicken of the woods. I just think it's very, very, very tasty. Mm, really
0: good.
1: And the dusting on the top is a, it's a wild garlic powder. Mm-hmm. So we just powder fresh young garlic leaves and it's got that lovely meaty Meatiness.
0: Yeah, no, that's, yeah. You're right. It's kind of meaty. Really, really flavoursome. Very nice. And what would you pair that with with your liqueurs?
1: I mean, usually we go. You know, I think something like the uh, the Amarosa goes really well. It's got that lovely savoury angle to it. Um, I think a little plate of these kind of snacks with uh, with an Amarosa spritz would just be fantastic on a on a late summer's day.
0: And that's your rosehip rum liqueur.
1: Yeah. Gold medal winning.
0: Nice. So, if we just, we've talked foraging, we've tried some um, food. How did this all start out? Like, how did you guys meet each other and how did you go from that point to this point?
2: Well, we met many years ago uh, working at Brown's restaurant in Edinburgh. Um, So, Rupert was the head chef there, I worked front of house. uh, So, by definition, we shouldn't have got along. but I was always fascinated by the, the specials and the, uh, the sort of things that he, he produced from the kitchen off the main menu, um, which for the demographic of people that came to uh, Brown's was probably quite challenging, but I used to really like selling it to them. So things like squid ink risotto and boudin noir sausages. Um, and it kind of reignited my sort of interest in, in wild foods on a very small level. And then we we both left, um, but befriended each other on Facebook so when Facebook first started and everyone was friending everyone. Um, and Rupert started posting lots of pictures of his wild experiments at home in his shed. And it was bottles of elderflower wine and pickles and mad salads and things. And that took me back to my childhood in Norway. Uh, I've grown up on the outskirts of Oslo and sitting in sort of blueberry meadows and sort of daydreaming there. And I happened to have a, a available venue in um, Portobello at the time. And, and I thought, right, this is worth doing some sort of pop-up dining experience. So, dragged Rupert out um, to the pub, um, bought him a few pints to persuade him to come out of chefing retirement. Uh, and he agreed to do two of these pop-up dinners. Um, and then we got some friends together, uh, brought them to this venue in Portobello and served them up what was uh, the first ever menu the poster actually behind you there is um, is all of the dishes that we served on that day um, and we've kept that as a little memory of where it all started uh, and at the time having no idea where it would take us we were adamant we weren't going to open a restaurant so we didn't uh, but we're always looking for that sort of business idea or spark that would um, allow us to do this for a living and, and the, uh, the, the drink is where it all started really so the elderberry liqueur served at the first dinner very nearly wasn't I kind of said no nah, maybe not Rupert said it's going on the menu it took me ages to forage and, and prepare all these berries so it's going out there and actually it was the start of the show that night and was for loads of the dinners afterwards One, my next door neighbour at the time actually came running into the kitchen at the end going what what was that elderberry stuff that was amazing do you know um, but it took us about two years to figure out that the that was the way forward. That could be a marketable product for us to take out there. Um, so we kind of we've incidentally arrived in the drinks industry um, through our our journey through the wilds of Scotland, really, which is uh, which is exciting.
0: And have you found that from that point of you know your pop up dinners, people's interest in wild food and foraging has grown over the years?
2: Definitely, I think. I think always there's always been a sort of interest to it. And I think one, one of the most sort of um, enjoyable things from our perspective when we were doing the dinners was having t- 20 strangers sit around the table and we'd more or less force them all to eat exactly the same thing. We didn't give prior notice to the menus. Uh, so we were pushing people out their comfort zones, but they all... Interacted and kind of came together around this one meal of really interesting, unusual ingredients, and just opening their eyes to the possibilities of what you can eat that's literally right under your nose or outside your window, um, blew people's minds. And then, and I think, I think blew our minds as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then, and I think more latterly, the, the sort of last eighteen months, with with people being out of the office and working from home and having to go out and do their exercise out in the wild, I think. It's it's shown people how important that is, and, and um, their connection to it's much stronger now. So possibly for the first time ever, I've been
1: ahead of the fashion curve. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so were you were you foraging and things when you you mentioned that when we were out when you were? I
1: think it was, it was something that I was introduced to as a child. It was just, I grew up in the West Highlands of Scotland, and we were always introduced to picking anything that was available. So it was kind of second nature. And then I moved to the city, and it, it just sat there as an idea. And then I uh, got tired of chefing and then moved to Thailand. And when I left Thailand, I thought if I go back to Scotland, I'm going to make sure I go and examine, you know, make the time to go and examine it. And that's when I just started picking all these kind of things. And then Tom saw the value in it. Because I was at the time amassing jars of pickles and you name it and thinking, what the hell's all this for, you know? And Tom suggested that we could put it together in his dining experience. So actually, but no, that sounds like a lot of work, you know, because I would kind of had enough of chefing. Um, so it was, it was great actually because that first dinner said to us it's like well there is more in it it doesn't have to be mindless steak and chips you know and we kind of made this pack that it was what we found exciting that would go on the plate um, and thankfully everybody else tended to agree you know but it was genuinely exciting and then it just it's it just led us to giving up the day job and um, and finding this as a full time occupation which is Pretty mind
2: blowing in itself. I think it's um, it's reevaluating sort of what is Scottish food as well. You know, trying to not move away from it because you know Rupert does an amazing stagus version of haggis and, but just yeah, showing how exotic and varied and diverse and exciting the food and the ingredients that we have on our shores and in our woods and stuff are. And for whatever reason, we've just lost connection to it. And what's really sort of encouraging from our perspective is you can see that there's a real hunger for it again. Um, and and yeah, through our drinks as well, it's, um, you know, people are, are, they're far more interested in, in sort of where the products come from, its sustainability credentials, its sort of uh, natural credentials, all these sort of things, um, which makes us much more relevant now than, than ever really. Definitely. But the neglect as well of the the local larder
1: has meant that, you know, we've flown mangoes in from Pakistan and we can take exotic fruits from the centre of Brazil, but at the moment the most exciting and the most exotic food on the planet is in Scotland for Scottish people, you know, because it's all undiscovered almost.
0: So we're sitting here, we should sort of describe, um, this is your um, tasting room and you've got shelves of looks like everything, dried stuff, pickled stuff.
2: It's our, our wild wall of weird, we call it. <laughs> so it's pickles, ferments, there's bottles of um, Rowan shoot spirit up there. So you can see it uh, looks sort of yeah, something, not yeah, something like a, a Damien Hirst formaldehyde <laughs> art installation. Jars of pine pollen there, reed mace pollen.
0: And do you know what you're going to do with it all?
1: Not always, you know? I mean, some of the things up there are you know, for for the for the tasting experience, and some of the things are just there so that one day we'll kind of think, if only we had. Oh, well, we do. We have
2: some pine pollen on the on the shelf. It's 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 our kind of inspiration wall as well. And and when we get sort of bartenders or people from the professions coming in and wanting to develop stuff themselves, maybe or alongside us or collaborative projects that we're they're working on at the moment, it's just that little. You know just to spark an idea in people's heads um and it is actually as much as there's loads and loads of jars it's a bit like um who said somebody said it's like a cross between willy wonka and uh, harry potter's one shop you know but this is only a tiny proportion of it um of everything it's it's been slowly coming out of various sheds and cupboards in rupert's house and and ending up on our shelves here which is exciting but again, it just shows you how many things that are out there.
1: But I think we were just crazy enough to imagine what's possible, you know, what would happen if we put that with that or that in there. Um, and things will move from then, eventually you'll come out with something that is 15 years old that you've left under a cupboard somewhere and you go, actually, that's amazing, you know, and can you remember how to make it? And it kind of slowly makes its way across the room to the wall here of finished product, You know.
0: So is that how Elder came about? Did you kind of think, oh, I want to do something with Elderberry and...
1: Elder was literally, I've got these Elderberries, are they edible? Yes, they're edible, great, what can you do with them? And it was just following all the recipes I could find, and then think, well, that worked, and if we just used that, but with this, and slowly but surely you come up with something um, very, very tasty. And at that point you go, right, remember how you did that, yeah. And that's, so the Amarosa was literally the same, but
2: with rose hips. We always talk about Amarosa's, uh, the first ever edition of it was trampoline aged in the back of uh, Rupert's garden. There was a small barrel that was, um, he'd put it together and then we more or less forgot about it in the you know, very early days. And uh, it wasn't until a few years later that he handed me a cup when we were doing something else. I wasn't paying attention, didn't tell me what it was. A cup with some ice and a little sort of drizzle of this liquid. And I tried it and I was like, what on earth was that? and then he reminded me of what it was it was the the rosehip rum and uh, so trying to recreate it actually we had to sort of pick the whole thing apart and I actually ended up yeah it was quite a, a difficult process actually um, but I, we, we got back to it eventually again so um, but yeah trampoline aged was the original batch
0: and so is that so now you've you say you've sort of ended up in the drink industry that's obviously now going to be your focus you're going to bring out more things to look foraged sort of
2: yeah yeah I mean we're, we're you know We've always said flavour first seasoned with spirit. So for us the priority and the, the sort of the, the star of the show always has to be the ingredients that go in uh, to the product. So whether it's elderberries, rose hips, you know, birch syrup. Um, but we are we are also about to launch some more spirit focused drinks. Um, so very excited. But yeah, just sort of broaden the range
1: really, because we've got these liqueurs have been the core. Um, but we're just keen to, you know, make as many useful bar ingredients as possible so we'll be bringing a lot more herbal amaro style drinks. Um we've got one of those in the pipeline. The spirits, you know, we have got uh, as I was explaining earlier the um the very exciting birch drink that's uh, coming out very soon and then just some playful things, you know, we're just going to take a play because we don't we're not constrained by having to distill things or do things in the way that other people feel they need to we kind of are from a kitchen so we can kind of cook up anything we like um, so we've got some rum' um, as much as we can tell you on that one um, and you know some exciting kind of whiskies if you like you know uh, but it's just just a bit of fun really just try and tell more of the story of, of um, what's possible um.
2: we've landed in the industry by by accident, if you like we've not gone through the conventional route. Um, that most distillers and distilleries go through. So, uh, exactly like Rupert says, we're not we're not sort of bound. We don't know what the, the, the constraints or the sort of the uh, the formula is, if you like. Which means we come to it with an open page and, and, and ideas. And some things will work, some things won't. But,
1: we um. just has to have integrity, as you say, and it just has to be really really tasty. You know, that's the fundamental. But people say, why is it 17%? You say, well, that's how it tasted best. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. because you are it's quite nice in a way. You're not putting yourself under any pressure. If you'd set up a distillery, then everyone would be watching to see what you're doing. But actually...
1: And you're very limited then, yeah. I mean, we'll have a distillery one day. That would be exciting. But we'd have to do very, very different spirits, you know?
2: I think it's... Um, what What we're finding as well is that those same places or like the more established brands uh, and and distilleries of things are now taking more note of what we're doing which is exciting so either using our products in cocktails or collaborative events or even products that will be launched off the back of it and i I think for us that's reassuring to know that whilst we're disruptive in the industry we are being acknowledged as well rather than seen as just too crazy, um we'd just, like to be seen as crazy as yeah, well yeah. you know, but consumers see it as well don't they they you know like we said earlier they they are now much more educated and and wanting to ask the right questions as far as we're concerned about you know where the products are from what the ingredients are they're less interested in in the the sort of strength of alcohol, for example um with the the low and no ABV cocktail sort of boom that's happening at the moment and and again our products fit that market very well because you can. Dilute them or use them in low ABV cocktails, um, which is good.
0: Uh, so obviously, a highlight, and I say this sarcastically, um, was being featured on BBC Great Food Guys, which was me, although mm. it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> what did what do things like that kind of did that kind of open you up to new audiences when it went on uh, BBC One?
2: Uh, definitely, and I think you know we are tiny in the drinks industry i think for some people the perception is we're much bigger than we are um you know having met other drinks brands and and companies they're always amazed that we even produce our own stuff sometimes um in 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 house rather than having it outsourced but you know Big companies have big marketing budgets we don't have that so we have to be creative and we also have to rely on word of mouth and also the support of exactly things like programs like that and uh, yeah it's that's massive for us you know we, we see a spike in sales whenever we get anything like that through our website um even at shows and events that we were doing I remember people coming up to me and saying "Oh, I saw you in that programme, oh, it was great right? I've been meaning to try and get some so yeah absolutely, it's essential for us to to keep growing and, and getting our brand out there um, so yeah, so thanks
0: okay. <laughs> Yeah, I should explain it was me but it wasn't me it was me that did all the research for all and got all the drinks um, but I didn't present that particular one but it was part of the wild menu uh, anyway, speaking of wild menu, we're here we're in the tasting room, we've gone foraging Can people come and do this now with you guys?
2: Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we started it, what, about four weeks ago, I think, Uh, so it's a tasting event. You get to come to our tasting room, sit around our lovely um, wooden table here, and uh, you get to try all of the different, the cures. We do sampling of that and then pair them with the canopies that you can see on the table here. So they're all favorites from our dining experience. So it's, uh, as Rupert says, a little potted history of the Buckingbirch dining experience but uh, also introducing the drinks and, and how, you, how to enjoy them uh, at home as well.
0: And are you going to do any pop-up dining again or is that kind of gone?
2: I think, I think one day, yeah definitely. We always say we're never
1: doing any ever again which means inevitably we will at yeah. some point do yeah. some
2: We We said we'll never open a restaurant, so you should wait for the restaurant (laughs) as well. We we always get asked, you know, quite often, and I think even more so now, we're getting other brands and clients asking us to do them. So, you know, if it fits, um,
1: I think it's been very exciting. We've had to kind of gear up to get almost international sales and distribution and so many things like setting this place up. That's kind of taken all of our time. Um, But we are very, very, very keen to get out and engage with the public. Um, And I think. For us, the set, the absolute setting of these drinks is in that dinner. Yeah. You know that that's what we love doing most. Um, so we'll have to at some point.
2: It's where they were born, I think, and and they definitely they pair with food. The idea for all our drinks, it's not a sort of, you know, we're not creating session drinks as such. It's more about getting together, um, you know, either with family or friends, and sit round and have good food, good drink, and good discussion, and that's as much as it. You know, we, we don't need people to. But I think it would be great
1: to, to really, you know, we always had loads of ideas that we didn't have the money or the time or the resource to put into action. Um, so it would be great, you know, because we never had the dinners for money. It was never supposed to be about money. It was that idea of getting 20 people around a table and just, it's magic, you know. So I think it would, it would be fantastic to be able to say we're going to have a dinner and hide the tickets in the forest or something. And have people go on a treasure hunt, you know. And, you um, and I, I, whoever finds them is is the lucky the lucky winner. A bit Willy Wonka, you know. And
2: I think that that sort of thing
1: we could see happening.
0: Yeah, that would be great.
2: Yeah, and then collaborating as well with other foragers. You know, there's a, a real sort of upsurge in, in foraging and foraging events all around the place. Uh, you know, Scotland and England and wherever. And, Rupert, in particular, knows the, the whole network, so working alongside them to do some really interesting collaborative events is, is definitely something. That
1: I think it'd be done. good to hire like some new young talent. I'm I'm getting on in years, you know, <laughs> all those long days in the kitchen. But it would be really exciting for me to get somebody who wanted to learn all these things um, and have almost like an apprentice. So you could, you know, they've got the energy, um, and that would be really exciting as well. Because it feels like a shame that we don't do more of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I do feel like. From a consumer's point of view, I mean, this was years ago now, and I don't know if you guys had anything to do with it. It was drama and smoke at the festival. They did a kind of pop-up mm. forage
1: Yeah, thing. that was quite success wasn't it?
0: Yeah, and they didn't. They they did it twice, and then didn't come back. And then um, Chef Barry Bryson in Edinburgh, he just did a prolonged series at Jupiter Artland, and it was outside, and it was it yeah. looked amazing. And I think people really. I mean, that sold out, so people are coming back round to that idea of something a bit different and experience as well as Definitely, your forestry. Yeah. No,
2: it's good to see. It is good. So you should do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as, as Rupert said, we've, we've spent the last uh, five years sort of in the woods, if you like, immersing ourselves there. We have lots of ideas. We have lots of delicious uh, recipes, drinks. We've just forgotten to tell everybody about it. So, you know, that is. That, you know, any, any, any way that we can share and, and have other people help share those ideas. Um, because the response from the tasting so far has been amazing. You know, people turn up on, a, on an industrial estate in McMerry um, and then turn up at our front door and we've got trees and plants and stuff all grown about and then walk into, it's like through the, the wardrobe in Narnia, you know, you walk in through the door and suddenly you're in this sort of birch forest bar. Um, and, and so people's expectations are one thing and then they're kind of blown away by what they actually experience. Um, which is great for us. That's exactly what we want to happen. Um, and they leave happy and feeling as though they've, they've learned something as well and, and been inspired. So we want more people to come and visit us.
0: Yeah. And what is the significance of the name, if anything?
2: Buck and Birch. Um, so the first ever dinner, um, we served uh, venison and hare. So that's the buck bit. And then we had prolonged, or we delayed doing the dinner actually so we could have fresh birch sap. Um, at the beginning of the meal as a little palate cleanser. Um, it's just to put off the inevitable amount of hard work as well. It was that, yeah. But I mean, so that's, that's really where the name came from. Um, and then birch has been such an integral part of everything that we do at venison obviously as well, but. We always start with the buck, you know, the venison stick was the very first thing we ever
1: served and the, the birch water. And it's all, we always finished with a caramel made from birch syrup. So it was kind of it's always been the way you know mm. uh i don't even know who called it the buck and birch it's
2: my wife <laughs> yeah one time she didn't call me some expletive you know <laughs> she went for that um and people always ask as well who's buck and who's birch but we haven't we haven't fought that out yet so uh so i don't know
0: the final bit of the podcast there's um a quick fire round which is all about food and there's also desert island drinks, sometimes drams, but let drinks. So, question to both of you, if you could only take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why?
2: I would take Elder, Amarosa and Anna with me, because <laughs> they're like my kids.
0: Okay, if you couldn't take any of your own drinks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm hopeless with these things, yeah. Do they have to be alcohol, sorry, or can it be... Well,
0: it can a- be well, Everyone always usually picks alcohol, though, yeah. which is interesting.
2: I can re-answer it, but... Um, that's a good question actually. I'd take a, a, a nice bottle of rum, rum's my favourite spirit, and then I'd probably need some ginger beer for that as well, so that's too gone isn't it? And then some birch sap actually, just a, a large vat of birch sap would be great. Yeah there's always nice
1: room for a, a nice cold beer in life I think.
0: And uh, right, so the quick fire round is called My Life in Food, um, and just to answer the first thing that comes into your head. So I'll go one then the other. Okay. Um so whenever I'm hungry I think of... Chips Comfort food for me is...
1: Cheese sandwiches
0: My favourite childhood dessert is... Oh, oh,
1: oh. Trifle
0: My food heaven is...
2: Cheese sandwiches
0: <laughs> And my food hell is... Oh, I
2: don't really have one... Uh celery
0: uh, well thank you very much so we're just going to tuck into the rest of these snacks I'm looking forward to the Yeah,
2: cake. you want to t- try the uh, chocolate mushroom as well
0: thanks Rupert and Tom and thanks to you for listening to this episode please remember to rate and subscribe I don't know about you but I'm really looking forward to going out foraging while walking with my dog Scran is a laudable podcast that's hosted and co-produced by me Rosalind Erskine and co-produced edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton